0: Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another My Ruby Story. This week, we're talking to James Shore. James, you want to say hi? Hi there. Now, we had you on episode 275. Uh, we talked about the evolution of agile, or agile, I've heard it said both ways, and evolutionary design, and... Uh, I remember just being fascinated by a lot of the ideas you brought around, and I know that you're still working on a lot of ideas around Agile. Do you want to just give kind of a a brief introduction to yourself and what you're working on these days, and then we'll dive into sort of your story in code?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I'm I'm James Shore. I have been been working in the agile community as a practitioner, programmer, and a coach uh, since 1999. So I've been I've been around for a while. And uh, these days, I am working on something called the Agile Fluency Project, which is uh, our goal is to help companies practice agile at the level that's fit for them. We can talk about that more later, I suppose.
0: Yeah Yeah, we'll definitely dive into it. To get us started though, I really want to go back to how you got into programming in the first place.
1: Yeah, let's see. Well, I was one of those I was one of those geeks that was fascinated by computers. So I started programming when I was a kid. And I have this I have this memory. I was I was fifteen. And of course, as a 15 year old, I'm I I don't want to say how old I am because uh, it might be embarrassing. Older than but, 15. <laughs> definitely older than 15. I was using, I was programming it on Apple II. The language available on the Apple II was AppleSoft Basic. AppleSoft Basic had this, this lovely capability in that, you know, it was, it was a classic basic. It had line numbers, it had go-tos, it had go-subs. And it had variables that ended in symbols saying whether they were strings or integers or whatever. And a dollar sign would represent a string. Mm -hmm. It it had this lovely capability that you could use variables of any length, but only the first two letters actually mattered. So if you named a variable can and you named another variable cannery, it was, it was the same thing. Oh really? Yeah. Yeah. Because only the first two letters matter and they both start with CA. So CA dollar sign would be the variable CA string. So, uh, I'm I, of course, as a young geek, am really into Dungeons and & Dragons. And actually, to this day, I'm still really into Dungeons & Dragons. I don't know if that's something I should be proud of or not. But I was writing, as every young geek must do, I was writing a D&D character creator. And it was the most complicated thing I'd ever written. Mm-hmm. And I'm slinging the variables, you know, N-A string for name, R-A string for race, C-L string for class, and uh, go-tos and go-subs. And it's it's all just, you know, the biggest, most complicated program I've ever made. And I have this memory of from one moment to the next, it was all in my head and then something happened. Maybe I had to go have dinner or got distracted by something and I came back into it and the whole structure just fell apart in my mind. You know, I think a lot of had that experience, right? Where you have it all and then poof, it's gone. And I I could not remember what CL string stood for or NA string. I couldn't remember what anything stood for. I didn't remember what the line numbers meant. And that was a really transformational experience for me. It's why I got into Agile. It's why I got into, you know, I started learning about Pascal and structure programming and then object-oriented programming and that experience of, knowing everything that I needed to know one moment to knowing nothing and not being able to make any changes. And of course I never worked on that program again uh, because I couldn't figure it out. That was really transformational for me. And I would say that more than anything else is how I got into real professional programming was that experience of building something too complicated for me to understand. That's really interesting. And uh, yeah, you said you were 15 at the time. I have 15,
0: 16, 17, I remember. Yeah, but yeah, when I was a teenager. So, so how did you progress from that to be? Because uh, I'm, I'm assuming you've built more complicated things since then. You
1: know. Well, you know, the the D and D character bill is still, still sort of the the pinnacle problem, right? No, John, not not really. Yeah, uh, it's, it's right yeah. up
0: there with the traveling salesman, <laughs> right?
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, it is actually a really interesting problem because the hard problems in programming at least from a design perspective are the human problems like there's nothing worse than dealing with calendars and time right and leap seconds and all that crazy stuff algorithms are nothing in comparison to the complexity of of building an application that has to deal with human problems and design is something that's always fascinated me i'm i'm terrible at algorithms you wouldn't hire me to to do a traveling salesman a practical traveling salesman solution right but But design problems where you've got all these human rules that, of course, because they're human are incredibly baroque and even the people who are the experts in the field don't all agree on what the rules should be Mm -hmm. or what the rules really are in practice. Those problems, that's where, you know, when you're designing a big piece of software, that's where that's where the real challenges come in, in my opinion, is figuring out how to represent those rules, which in the human world are sort of bashed together just by people hitting their heads against them for a while until they come to some sort of vague consensus. But in a computer, you've got to have them—you've got to have them actually be concrete, <laughs> and you have to resolve all those those contradictions. So how do you do that, and how do you do it in a way that somebody can read and understand? So yeah, that D and D problem I think actually represents sort of in a microcosm the the real world because it's full of weird vagaries and, and interpretations and so forth.
0: Yep. Absolutely. How did you go from the hobbyist teenager to professional software developer?
1: Like I said, I was, I was a total geek. So I was involved in something called FidoNet, which, was sort of like a pre-internet. It was a it was a messaging system that was linked together through people f- calling into uh phone-based bulletin board systems. I don't know if you ever got involved with the BBS scene. I didn't. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so but before the internet, the way people communicated was through modems, of course, you know. Yeah, uh, I am old enough to have used a modem. Right. Right. So, um, well, for those listeners who are not, this was a device that translated digital signals into analog audio and communicated over the phone line. And there was no internet. So what you do is you'd call somebody who had a modem and had, had set up a server and those servers were called BBSs. They were software that answered the phone and would like present information for you and you could go through menus and so forth. And one of the most popular ways for people to send mail, email, back and forth amongst all these servers around the world was called FidoNet. And so I was I was uh, running my own point system, which was sort of a, a parasite on the main FidoNet system. And that mm-hmm. I pulled data down, but I didn't call and forward anybody's email to anybody else, because back then, long-distance phone calls, calls outside of your city, were really expensive. Yep. I remember when Sprint introduced 10 cents a minute. And that was a deal. (laughs) And international calls were really expensive too. So, FighterNet was a way for people to send email around the world without incurring a lot of international phone calls. Right. So this was sort of a bulletin board. uh, This was sort of a forum that was available on FighterNet as well as well as the direct mail. I contributed a lot there on one of the basic forums. Somebody, a company, saw what I was writing and hired me based on that work. And so that was my first real job out of college was working for a company, working in BASIC, doing point-of-sale software for, for companies that did glass replacement in the auto industry, auto glass uh, shops. Oh,
0: wow. Yeah, I remember getting into uh, software and yeah, that that first experience of I'm getting paid real money to write real software. Was kind was of
1: <laughs> kind of exciting. It was, you know, I was... I was fresh out of college and I was woefully underpaid. I'm not even going to say how much I was paid. It was, it was very underpaid and I didn't have a car. So I rode my bicycle to, to work every day, but it was my first real job. And you know, that was, that was my ticket in. And even from that first job, I was always interested in how can we make software actually work? Uh Um, How can we keep it in our heads, not have it fall apart? Like I had that experience I had when I, when I was a teenager. So I was, I got very interested in software process design and and software technical design, and that's what eventually led me into the Agile field. Yeah, that's that's exciting. In
0: fact, why, why don't we go ahead and make that transition to the Agile field? We had you on to talk about Agile development and Agile, I'm trying to remember the exact terms, but yeah, you know, we talked a lot about that, and, you know, I understand that you haven't done a, a ton with Ruby. So yeah, so yeah, do you want to look, talk a little bit about that transition to Agile and what really connected with you there?
1: Sure, sure. You know, I have I have programmed in Ruby, although it's it's I have to admit it's it's not my right. my main my main tr- purpose. Uh, I have never used Rails. I must I might be the only Ruby programmer, <laughs> one of the few Ruby programmers You're who's not. never used Rails. But uh, I, I did use Ruby to write a Monte Carlo simulation for uh, yet another dnd project so there is that i have done real real software but uh just for a hobby but um uh what got me into agile was one of my after i had been in the industry for about five years i was in a situation where i was still trying to figure out how what's the process for doing software how do you develop software as part of a team uh-huh. and the the thing of the day was waterfall that was clearly and obviously the right way to develop software. Everybody knew it. Everybody did it or aspired to do it. And I had this book that was published by IBM or a bunch of IBMers. And I remember it because it had a blue cover and on the inside of the cover was this huge graph that showed who was going to be assigned to the project at what stage. You know, you started out with your requirement analysis, analysts on the project and you they were going to spend this amount of time this number of people in this amount of time. And then you're going to have your architects come in. They're going to do the overall application design. And then you'd have your system designers come in. And then you'd have your programmers who would be a lot of them, but they wouldn't have to be really smart. And they would come and implement the design that they were handed. And then they would transfer off to test. Thing. I remember they had this really complicated graph. And I love this graph because it was so crisp and clear and, and it made everything very straightforward. And so I remember I was at a company, we were building automation for robotics for chip fabrication plants, like you see at intel and these these robots would transfer the chip wafers from one station to the next and they were doing this process better than anybody else ever had that i'd worked with mm-hmm. uh, they were really doing it by the book they had a tool called rational rose which was a sort of a it was called a computer assisted software engineering tool it would take diagrams that you drew all your design diagrams and it would automatically translate them into code it wouldn't actually write the software the code part but it would make all the classes and methods and everything you needed they had giant plotters to print out these diagrams and they hung them on the wall they did use cases uh, everything by the book it was the worst failure i've ever experienced it was oh a complete <laughs> disaster <laughs> it was terrible you know that that case tool rational rose it had this this lovely capability that if you um, – when it generated the software for you, when it auto-generated the, the structure of your application, if it didn't recognize a method, it would comment it out. But also, any comments that were outside of methods, when it regenerated, it would just erase. Oh. So, if you renamed a method and then ran the case tool twice, the first time it would comment it out and the second time it would erase it. So, <laughs> that was – and it it couldn't. It was all binary format, so you couldn't do uh, couldn't have two people editing the same the same diagram at the same time. And of course, there's just a couple of diagrams for the entire system. Mm-hmm. It was it wasn't just rational though. We switched away from that. It was just the whole idea that you can predict so precisely who's going to be doing what and have everything just flow from one person to the next. It just it didn't work. It the places it had worked, it had worked despite the process, not because of it. Right. Uh, But I was, I had been really invested in, you know, I knew from reading all these books that this was the right way to do it. So I came away from that feeling very disillusioned, you know, well, if this isn't the way to develop software, how can software possibly be developed? And I ran across a book called Modeling in Color because back in those days, because Waterfall was all about getting the design right before you started programming, there were all these books about how do you write your designs, how do you model them, how do you draw your design. Uh, there was the universal modeling language, which was the, sort of the big new tech of the day. This is in late 90s. And uh, one of these books was Modeling in Color. And also Martin Fowler had a book called UML Distilled. and Oh, UML. <laughs> yes. Yeah, UML Distilled. And Martin Fowler, of course, is still to this day one of the premier people in the Agile agile community. And mm-hmm. he stuck into that UML Distilled book a chapter, which got taken out of later editions when he stopped being the one responsible for it, uh, a chapter about lightweight processes. And this modeling and color book also had a chapter in it about a lightweight process called feature-driven development. Well, lightweight processes were what in 2001, or maybe it was 2000 got renamed to agile. It was this idea that rather than having this, everything precisely defined in advance about how your process is going to work and you have these people at this time and these people at this time mm-hmm. that maybe just maybe having smart programmers instead of an army of dumb programmers implementing other people's design, having smart programmers who work together, self-organize and work directly with their customers to understand what needs to be done. Maybe that would be a good idea. And this idea was just starting to sort of take root in the late 90s. It was very much a grassroots programmer-driven movement. And as a programmer who had just been really badly burned by waterfall, done as purely as it could possibly be done and failing as badly as it could possibly fail, Uh (laughs) I just latched onto it. And I uh, tried out feature-driven development. And then on that project, one of the people said, hey, you should check out this thing called Extreme Programming on oh, yeah. wiki wiki web <laughs> and i said extreme what And wiki wiki what and um, I, I said that sounds completely silly and we're doing this feature-driven development thing so no we're, we're going to do that but i checked it out and at the time words wiki which was the original wiki web was just this incredibly vibrant place with all these people experimenting and trying things and extreme programming was being developed there and so i read all about it and on my next project i tried it and it worked really well. And from that point on, I was hooked. That's amazing.
0: And I think it's interesting, too. A lot of times we don't go look for these solutions until we really have the pain. Yeah, that's so true. Do you think you would have found agile development or feature-driven development if you hadn't had a colossal failure, I guess, with Waterfall?
1: I don't think, you know, if it had worked, I would have stuck with it uh, because mm-hmm. I wasn't looking for anything else. I think your point about we learn through pain is is so true. <laughs> I think in in many ways, the, the best learning comes through failure. And I used to chair an experience report track for, I've, I've been involved with experience report tracks in conferences. And when people submit an experience report to a conference, they always talk about what they did that worked. But when I was selecting papers, I would always... Look for and encourage people to share what did they what happened that didn't work that caused them to go to what they did that did work. Mm -hmm. You know what's the context because there's all these ideas that work for certain people in certain situations, and I believe that they work, but that doesn't mean they're going to work for you and me. Right. What we need to know is what's their context, what's the situation that's going on, what did they try that didn't work, so we can learn that the situation that the solution that did work, what does that apply to? Right.
0: Yeah, I I completely agree. Because, yeah, I I find, I mean, even on the technical end of things, right, you have people that are saying, well, this solution works for, for my case. And somebody else says, well, I tried that and it was a total bust. And once you really dive into it, it turns out, well, you folks are working under completely different context from each other.
1: Yeah. Well, you see that. I mean, there, we we in the programming industry, we love to fight about trivial things, right? Like VI versus Emacs or...
0: or That's whatever. not trivial. Emacs is <laughs> obviously the way to go.
1: How about tabs versus spaces then? Uh, yeah, I'm with you on that one. <laughs> as long as you agree with me anyway. Yeah. Yeah. You know, on that one of the projects that I led, uh, I said, arguing over brace placement and other syntactic things is, is not a good use of our time. So... Use whatever you want. Just follow whatever whatever files in you're in. Use the same the same p- pattern. Of course, they didn't. We ended up with four developers. We had three different brace styles throughout the entire application. And you know what? Didn't matter. The stuff that really mattered was design standards, like how do we deal with exceptions and nulls and and uh, and stuff like that.
0: Yeah. And going back to an earlier point, you know, on a lot of these things. The conversations that I've had around a lot of these on the teams that I've worked on usually boil down to, do we want to enforce this? And then if we do, we're going to give ourselves a half hour to hash it out. And then we'll have our linting tool tell you if you violated it, <laughs> you know, and that's yeah, exactly. It, because it's not worth a three day debate over whether you
1: put where you put your braces. Right. I have to admit, I have my preferred brace style and, and the, the wrong brace style I find incredibly irritating but I'm a professional, you know. If I'm working on a project in a team where they've chosen a different brace style, I'll just deal with it because ultimately, in the in the grand scheme of thing, my personal dislike is not going to help us create better software.
0: Yeah, well, and it's funny too because you bring that up, and it's it's not a debate that we really have in Ruby, because when you define a method or something, you just new line. And That's a good point. It you know it comes up more when you're talking about um, blocks. And even then most people agree that if it's one line it gets braces and if not then it gets a do end. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. it's you know, it, it it's really easy to just kind of conform because it just kind of flows naturally that way. But you know, my the biggest show that I'm involved in is a JavaScript podcast and yeah. <laughs> I see this <laughs> I see this battle <laughs> fought and it's it's really kind of funny.
1: Yeah. You know, I've, I've been doing a lot of work with JavaScript the last couple of years and, uh, the JavaScript community is fascinating because it's this incredibly vibrant, fast changing community, which mm-hmm. for newcomers, I think drives them crazy because you don't know what the current standards are. There's not really any standards, but it, it leads to this, this really neat crucible of ideas yep. where new ideas are constantly being tried and the better ones are being created and old ones are getting discarded. It does, <laughs> as, as a participant in that community and as a programmer, you do have to manage your time carefully and not got, get caught up in the fads, I think. Yeah. But it is a neat community uh, for that reason. Well, there are standards out there. The thing that's interesting about it
0: is that most of those standards transpile to the others. Yeah. Which, yeah. Is, which is really weird, but I think it does also, like you said, add to that crucible of ideas that, that comes about, right? Because... I, I work in my own way, and then as it translates over to the way that you work, then it's oh well, this this brought out this interesting meld of these other couple of ideas that we never considered.
1: Yeah, you know, this is a little bit of an aside, but we were talking about sort of the the journey of the professional and my, my personal journey through that through that uh, through that process. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I've come to realize is that if you're the kind of person Who sees an unfamiliar idea, let's say that you really prefer tabs and somebody's using – or you really prefer spaces and somebody's using smart tabs. Right. Or you really prefer your braces in one style or you really hate semicolons or whatever. If you see something that somebody else is doing and it's different and you can't get past that. If you see the JavaScript community and you can't get past the left pad debacle or the fact that there's a million dependencies or this or that, Mm -hmm. and that's what you can – the only thing you can talk about when you engage with the community, that's a real sign of immaturity. I think the professional developer, the experienced senior developer is able to look past those trivialities of style and find the substance. And the great programmers find what they can steal, not what they can dislike. I think that's absolutely crucial. In fact, if I could make that
0: point <laughs> for months at a time on my podcast, I would. Because yeah. when we're when we're really talking about these ideas, and we see this too. I mean, the political climate in the U.S., you know, people just won't talk to each other. You know, they just want to dismiss what everybody else is saying. And, you know, it comes back around to that too. Well, it turns out that I talk to people who are on the complete opposite spectrum for me. And we agree on like 70, 80% of things. And so, you know, and, and on the other things, they usually have some rational reason for believing what they believe, just like I have rational reasons for what I believe. And so if we can get down to those ideas and then kind of build a foundation around it and then have a conversation about it and without being dismissive, without fighting over it, without not being able to get past whatever the issue is, yeah, that that's where we really have constructive uh, process in defining these ideas and understanding how we can move forward and at least get some of what we want for everybody. And then where we diverge, then we can talk about the
1: merits of either either argument. Yeah, exactly. You know, ultimately, a dismissive approach, and of course, I read Hacker News, and you see this all the time, what they call the middle brow dismissal. It's intellectual laziness. Uh, It is a cheap way of feeling good about yourself because everybody wants to feel superior. You know, it's sort of the human condition to want to feel like you're not at at least people don't want to feel inferior, right? So when presented with an idea that may be a little bit challenging or that you don't understand, an easy way to feel superior is to dismiss it Oh, say, oh, that's a bad idea or you're a bad person. And Mm -hmm. it's just complete laziness rather than taking the time to understand what's really going on. I mean, the idea may still be wrong. It may still actually be a bad idea. (laughs) I'm I'm not going to say that every idea is good. But if you can't understand why people are doing that, really understanding it, and you have to focus on something shallow like, you know, her, her JavaScript sucks or her, her Ruby's slow, then I've lost a lot of respect for you. Yeah. Because you're showing that you're somebody who values feeling good about yourself more than you value really understanding the root of what's going on.
0: Yep, absolutely. And I could dig into this a whole lot more, but this shows about you and your journey. And and it's important, I think, to highlight these issues, but I do want to move on just in the interest of time. Sure. So So let's talk about what you feel like you've contributed to the programming community. I mean, what things have you worked on that you think are important for people to know about so that they can go and make their development practices better.
1: Yeah. Well, of course I've been I've been heavily involved in the agile community for a long time. And agile has gotten sort of a bad rap these days because it's been glommed onto by a, a, a bunch <laughs> Sorry of consultants for laughing. <laughs> yeah. No, that's fine. It's it's frustrating to me because, you know, back in the day when I got involved with agile, which was late 90s, it was a grassroots movement. Led by programmers in reaction to this desire of managers to dehumanize people, to to hire cheap, replaceable programmer parts, that uh, and and put these rigid processes on top of them to force them into working in a certain way. Uh, agile was a reaction on that
0: count. That it's not agile that's disproven that, but the teams that have worked that way. It has failed over and over again. Some teams oh, yeah. can work that way and get stuff done. But yeah, most teams that I see they, they wind up losing people over it and ultimately failing because they see programmers as you know interchangeable parts instead of people.
1: Right. Yeah, and, and this is a profession that ultimately what we're doing, unless you're in something doing something that's really algorithm heavy, which most software is not. This is a an environment where our job is is to take the messy human world mm-hmm. and translate it into crisp, clearly defined rules that a computer can execute. That is fundamentally a communication problem. It's a problem of communicating to the experts to understand what they are, what the rules really are. It's a problem of communicating to each other through the design of our code, and it's a problem of communicating to the computer. And I you cannot—that's the best definition I've heard of,
0: of software development—is oh, translating the messy human world into processes that the, the computer can understand and execute
1: yeah yeah and that's it's really a human problem so if you it think is. of your people as not humans or as you know code monkeys that's not i mean if you treat them as sort of these ir, this interchangeable parts then you're not going to get people who can do that human job or you're not going to or you, you'll you get the people who can do the job but you will prevent them from doing that job uh, because you will think of them as people who don't do that kind of job and you'll get bad results yeah So, unfortunately – and Agile was a reaction against that mentality and, of course, what's happened over time is Agile has been captured by people who still think that way of, you know, of programmers being interchangeable parts and I just want a reproducible thing and they want to micromanage. And they've turned it back into what it was a reaction against. So, that – that's sort of something that frustrates me. So I am fighting the good fight. <laughs> I have Thank always you. been fighting the good fight, trying to prevent that. I have a book. So you asked me, you know, what what contributions have I made that people might know about or want to know about? I have a book. It's about 10 years old now, but it's still actually mostly current. It was written to be fairly evergreen called The Art of Agile Development. It's all about how to do agile as in a way that follows that grassroots programmers, programmers matter approach. I also have done a bunch of software over the years, some, most of which is no longer, and open source stuff. The, the most recent things that I think people might be interested in, I have a tool called Quixote, which is a tool for unit testing CSS using JavaScript as the driver. And I also am, am going to be talking at Deliver Agile Conference next week, and I'll be pr- probably posting about this on my blog, which is at jamesshore.com, on how, do you, how you can test code without mocks. So how can we have code that – how can we test code without having a lot of integration tests, without having a lot of framework-y boilerplate magic? Uh, so that should be pretty interesting. That sounds amazing. The, the biggest thing that I'm working on, though, these days is the Agile Fluency Project. And this is part of that fight against the micromanagement and dilution of, man, of Agile. This is trying to get people to this – is, this is an effort to get Agile done well in every organization that needs Agile at a level that's appropriate for this situation. And by done well, we mean really following the principles of Agile about paying attention to the people. You know, some people say the only thing you need to do to develop good software is hire smart people, put them in a room and get out of their way. Well, that's kind of what Agile is about. Now, mm-hmm. what do you do when things are more complicated than that? <laughs> yep. Um, so, you know, and if you, depending on what kind of results you're trying to get, the way you're going to approach that is going to be different. So that's what the Agile Fluency Project is all about. And I'd say that's, that's sort of my biggest thing these days is, is that project. Very nice. Is there a place
0: people can go to
1: check that out? Yeah. The, we, we wrote a long article. The thing that we developed that sort of led to the Agile Fluency Project... Uh, It was Diana Larson and I. Diana Larson is a co-author of the book Agile Retrospectives. If you've ever done a retrospective, you've probably used her work. She is
0: extremely intelligent and very – she explains things so clearly. I, I, I
1: love everything that she does. I, I really enjoy working with her because I'm a programmer by background and she's an organizational development person. So all about the interactions between he, people and teams and so for, and managers. And so we do a lot of work together and we're, we're co-founders of this Agile Fluency project. And it's really neat to have these different perspectives. You know, me with a technical background, her with the organizational mm-hmm. development background. I just love working with her. So several years ago, back in 2012, we created something called the Agile Fluency Model. And what this was, was a look at how does people's, uh, fluency with agile change over time? How do teams change over time? And we published the, we, we shared this out with a bunch of people to get their reviews. And one of them was Martin Fowler and he ended up publishing it on his site. And, uh, just recently we have uh, we have updated that article. We've put out a completely rewritten second edition that goes into a lot more detail about, it's really something you can share with your managers. It's about what should you expect from your Agile teams? What kind of benefits will you see from different types of Agile? What kinds of investments do you as a manager need to put into your organization to get those results? And then as team members what and, and people interacting with teams, what kind of skills and proficiencies do you need to have? So it sort of lays out, everything you need to know without being specific to any one Agile methodology. You know, I'm an extreme programmer from way back, but Scrum is really popular. Kanban is really popular. All of these work in the context of the Agile Fluency model. So if you go to agilefluency.org, there'll be a link to that model, and that's sort of a good place to start. And then there's additional material on that site that we offer for people who are who are interested in working with us to to learn more or do
0: more. That's awesome. And I'm just kind of browsing the the website a little bit and – I mean, there's a lot here that just, yeah, it's it's almost a guided tour for how to self-organize so that you can uh, create the environment you want to work in.
1: Well, exactly. I think I think that that word you use, self-organization, that is something that people forget, especially the micromanagers mm-hmm. and, and the consultants making a buck off of the micromanagers. Agile is about working together as a team to choose and create the process that is the best fit for what your organization needs. And it's about self-organizing around that. Now, in the early days of Agile, what was really hard for people and where Agile would fail or people would burn out on it was that they couldn't get support from the organization Mm -hmm. to do that self-organization because that's threatening to managers. I'm not saying managers are the bad guys, but there is a certain... But in order to do Agile well, you have to have management support, the willingness for you to create a cross-functional team who's going to make their own decisions about what to develop or at least how to develop it. And if you don't have that, its you can still do Agile, but there's going to be this job of somebody who's shielding the team from the rest of the organization. And that's a very, that's a very tiring job. People would burn out on it. Yeah. Nowadays, when I see people complaining about Agile, they're in that situation where they still have the lack of self-organization, but now what's been imposed on them is all the superficialities like story cards or worse, Jira, which isn't really an Agile thing at all, Um, or – points, you know, we're going to measure your productivity through telling you to estimate your cards and points. And the more points you do, the better you're doing. That's, that's completely wrong. (laughs) It's just so wrong. I don't even know how to start saying how wrong it is Uh, for anybody listening to this. If you are evaluating your productivity using velocity or story points, you're doing it wrong. Uh, Velocity is a prediction tool, not a performance metric. But anyway, I've worked in that nightmare. I mean, scenario before. (laughs) Yeah, you don't get me started. I can I can rant about this all day,
0: but yeah, yeah. I, I honestly I I just look at this and I'm like I'm, I'm thinking to myself, where was this? You know, uh, you know, seven eight years ago when you know when I was in like the nightmare team or when I was trying to organize, you know, and not knowing exactly what I was doing because I think a lot of these tools, it's it's not just for software teams to adopt on their own, but I mean, I was, I'd, I'd been programming professionally for like two years when I became a team lead. And so just having the tools, like having a guided path for this, it would have been so handy to have because it would have been, okay, look, we're going to talk through these things right now. And we're, we kind of have an eye on what's coming next. But, you know, we're, we're going to start creating this system that we all, you know, feel good about, that we're all going to follow, that's going to work for us. And, you know, it takes some other organizational leadership skills that you have to have in order to be a team lead that can, you know, guide this kind of thing through. But, yeah, the guide rails were, well, I could have gone out and become a certified scrum master or something like that. And so something like this where it's like, look, figure out what works for you and here are some ideas. Yeah. Just so, so valuable.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the intention. I hope people do find it valuable. We do have something called the agile fluency diagnostic, which mm-hmm. is for people in a situation where they have, uh, typically this is consultants or internal consultants, but people who have influence over the way work is done across five or more teams, a bunch of teams in the organization. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah, there's something really interesting that happens there. If you look at a single team and you look at, the results they're producing, it's easy to say, well, they're not producing the results you want because the team's doing it wrong. Mm-hmm. And I've known some organizations that were really blame-oriented who would fire the manager and dismantle the team if the team wasn't producing the results they wanted to see. Right. But the fact is, is that organizations are built, as Diana likes to say, organizations are built to achieve exactly the results they get. And if you're seeing a lack of performance Maybe it's the people on the team, maybe it's the manager, but most likely it's the organizational system preventing the results you want because the system, the context in which a team lives has so much more influence on the team than uh, on their, on their bigger picture behaviors than, than necessarily the team itself. Assuming you're doing a decent job of hiring. And if you're not, that's still a systemic issue. You know, if you can't hire capable people, that's a systemic issue. If you are hiring capable people and they're not doing a good job, there's something wrong with your system. So the agile fluency diagnostic, when you're working with multiple teams, five, 10, one of the companies we worked with here in in Portland had 50 teams, is a way of looking at what's going on across all the teams. And then when you see a trend, when you see 80% of the teams having trouble in a particular area or doing well in a particular area. That tells you about the organizational system and what you as, because this is a tool for helping leaders decide what to do strategically, you as a leader can do to invest in improving that system rather than saying, oh, well, this is just the people involved because it's never the people. I mean, sometimes there's individuals who are toxic, but usually, usually it's the environment you've put them in and the constraints you put in often even unwittingly that are preventing success. Yep.
0: I have nothing to add to that. Yeah, I think you hit it right <laughs> on the head. So <laughs> I'm just going to ask, is there anything else that you're currently working on that you want to shout out about before we get to PICs?
1: So I am very excited about this testing without mocks. You know, I am a programmer by background. I do a lot of this agile work, which because it's a human problem, involves a lot of non-programmer stuff, but I, I still do a lot of programming. And I'm most excited from a programming perspective about this testing without mocks idea. The ability to have code that is thoroughly tested without requiring you to write integration tests and without requiring you to write code that is hard to refactor, I think this could be, I think this could be a pretty big deal. And I'm going to be writing about it on my blog after talking about it at my conference. So uh, do keep an eye on that. Uh, it's jameshore.com. There's an RSS feed and uh, I'll be posting on that soon maybe even by the time the show goes up. Awesome. Well, we'll look forward to it. So one last thing before we do picks
0: is if people want to see what you're working on now or kind of follow what you're thinking about, uh, usually people at this point will shout out a Twitter link or a Twitter handle or a blog URL, which you've already shared, or GitHub
1: or things like that. So, so yeah, where, where do you think out loud on the internet? Oh, all over the place. Uh, I do tweet. I'm a, My Twitter handle is at James Shore. My GitHub, which has that Quixote CSS testing tool, which I, I work on whenever time allows, which unfortunately is not as often as I'd like. Uh, my GitHub is github.com slash James Shore. My writing is at jamesshore.com, and there's an RSS link that you can find out where I'm going to be speaking, and uh, any of my thoughts will show up on that RSS feed. And then if you're interested in the Agile fluency stuff, then go to agilefluency.org and there's a link that says join the conversation and that will bring you to a Google group that will allow you to just join a Google group where we share what's going on there. And for anybody out there who is working with multiple teams, we'd love to love to talk to you about the Agile Fluency Diagnostic. I think we're doing some really cool stuff there that, um, that uh, we're looking for people to, to work with on it.
0: Terrific. Well, I'll, I'll just encourage people to go check out all of those things because, yeah, I, I think it's critical that we have these conversations on our teams. And, uh, yeah, all the work that James and Diane and other folks are doing out there. I mean, if, if you're struggling needlessly, just, you know, stop and, and, and take a minute to f- see if there's something out there that will help you out. All right, let's go ahead and uh, do some picks. Do you have some things you want to shout out about? This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the hosting provider I use for DevChat.TV. I also use it for my applications that manage the RSS feeds, scheduling, and sponsorships involved in delivering these shows. DigitalOcean is easy to use, has data centers all over the world, and provides terrific services including server hosting and object storage for delivering your web applications and assets quickly and easily. I use DigitalOcean because I love their interface, I get SSD storage for my servers, and their support replies quickly. So go check them out at DigitalOcean.com.
1: Yeah, two things that had caught my attention recently. First is uh, Neil Killick had this amazing thread on Twitter, and I will I will send you the URL to share with your viewers. Uh, it was just this thread about how to slice stories. Uh, people always ask, how do we write stories? How do we break them down? Uh, user stories from the agile perspective. How do we break them uh-huh. down so we can accomplish them and show progress without contorting ourselves? Uh, he has this great thread on that, and. Second, if you haven't seen her stuff, check out Vi Hart. She does, she does YouTube videos about mathematics, and they're always fun to watch. She's impressive, so, too. Cool yeah, stuff there. Yeah. She was really involved in AR and VR for a while, but now she's gotten back into doing these uh, these mathematics videos, and they're lots of fun. Very cool. Well,
0: um, I'm going to do a couple of shout-outs myself. First of all, you know, this last week I was at NGConf and uh, it was a ton of fun. So if you're into Angular and you haven't been to ng-conf, see about coming next year. Um, I'm pretty sure they announced the dates. It's going to be at the beginning of May coming up. So anyway, uh, definitely look into that. Um, I'm also going to shout out the theme of the conference was Ready Player One slash the 80s. And if you haven't seen the movie, the movie was pretty darn good. If you've read the book and haven't seen the movie, get rid of all of your expectations and then go see the movie. <laughs> <This> is what <laughs> I'll say there. Because um, I, I went and saw it. Uh, after having reread the book for like the third time and uh, I was thoroughly disappointed and at the same time thinking that was actually a decent movie. And then I went and saw it again at the conference, knowing then that it, you know, the way that it resembled or didn't resemble the book uh, was kind of, you know, what I was thinking along those lines. And uh, anyway, so watching it, knowing that my expectations weren't going to be held up as far as the book goes. Yeah. Yeah it went much better the second time and I liked the movie a lot better. So yeah, I'm just going to throw those out there and, uh, and let people know to check those out. Um, I've also been doing interviews with people at conferences. So if you want to go see interviews so far, I have NgConf and ng-atlanta. So those are both angular conferences. Um, it looks like I'm probably going to wind up going to FluentConf. if you're a web developer, which a lot of our listeners are. So, you know, sometime in June, keep an eye out for those interviews coming up and, uh, Yeah, if you're, you know, in in any of those areas in San Jose or I'm going to be in Seattle the beginning of uh, May. So, yeah, if you're interested and you're in any of those areas, let me know because I I like meeting new people. And, uh, yeah, we'll go ahead and wrap this up. Thanks for coming, James. Oh, my pleasure. It's been a blast. All right. We will uh, wrap it up and we'll catch everybody next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN.